welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Michael Martin here with with my man Mike Sauter, and in a little bit we'll introduce you to our guest Therese Schroeder Schieker, who is uh, I mean I've been a fan for thirty years, so this is great for me to do to do. How this. did you first discover her? Funny, you should ask. Okay. So, uh, well, before I do that, I need to to issue. Uh, a correction from our last podcast because when i when i listed all the players on our bumper music i left out the most important one paul goodman the the accordion player i was gonna say there's a paul goodman famous literary critic social critic this yeah, is a it's not this different guy. one yeah this guy this guy's paul goodman the, the polka man he <laughs> played in polka bands forever and he actually that's how we got the fiddle player they used to play in polka bands together huh. but i just want to say Paul, I'm sorry if this has hurt you or your family in any way. And just know the Regeneration Podcast offers our condolences. It's always good to make those never do it apologies. Again. Yeah. But back to my story about Therese. So, well, Bonnie and I have been married for 30 years. And when I first started, when we first got married, that was a Waldorf teacher. And Bonnie, to this day, loves to listen to music when she's uh, uh, cooking in the evening. So I came in the house from from school, and she was listening to this music. And it was on CDs, and it was a, a Wyndham Hill compilation record. And there was this song, and I said, what is this song? And I picked up the CD, the jewel case, and it was Teresa's song. Rosa Mystica, and I was enthralled. And so, right after that, we we ordered uh, the album that come that comes from, which is Rosa Mystica as well. And I don't know what happened to either one of those CDs over the years, but uh, when I when I met Tree seven years ago or six years ago, uh, she gifted me one. And so that's only part of the story. So I was just in love with this music, and then. Uh, probably about 1998 maybe 99 uh, i was organizing a conference at the waldorf school where i used to teach and i had to find a speaker you know a keynote speaker and the first two i tried were because i wanted i wanted to be on imagination and the first was Ursula K. Le Guin, who wrote huh, me. That would have been a coup, too. And huh? she, well, it would have been. <clears throat> but she wrote back. She says, oh, I'm so flattered, young man. But you have no idea how old I am. And so I didn't. I think she must have been almost 90 at the time. Does she go by fantasy, uh, uh, science fiction, or both, would you say? I didn't even want to go She's there. She's a creative genius, no doubt. Creative genius. And then, so she shot me down. And then I tried Madeline Langle, who was who was previously engaged and couldn't not do it. And so I, 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 my next choice was Robert Sardello. I know him too. And Robert. So he, he agreed. He came to Detroit to, to give this talk was just wonderful. And <clears throat> during one of the breaks, <coughs> pardon me, he was talking about what he's doing at the time. And he was working with, you know, at, uh, in Missoula, Montana with Therese. And Ma Therese will tell us tell us about this. And I was like, "Wow, you mean the, the recording person, the, the harpist, the, the composer, the singer?" I was like, "Oh yeah." She, and, but, she, but I found out this whole other area of Therese's life. So that's so that's a long time ago. Still, it's twenty five years ago almost. Really, that long. And then, uh, 
the latest installment of this 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 it's kind of interesting when you look at these kinds of long time relationships with a person or an idea mm-hmm. and it comes back and so um just before i met you mike in 2016 when i had the conference when we did the radical catholic reimagination of everything conference here at my farm and right before that maybe a month before that i got a call from one of my publishers and he i said what are you doing he said i'm at this conference i said that's good and i didn't know what he was doing at the conference but he he said that he had just talked to therese schroeder sheker and she read my book and she wanted to know if it was okay for her to get a hold of me i'm like are you kidding i'm a giant fan and I, but, but my mistake was, I thought he just bumped into Therese at this conference, which was not the case. It must've been that, that Therese sent an email or a phone call or whatever. And for the longest time, I thought they just bumped into each other, but that was not the case. And then soon after that, I, I talked to Therese. She, she called me on the phone. We talked for a long time. And I remember Therese, you, you were you were you wanted to come to the conference but you had something else that prevented you from coming and and there it started and it's kind of interesting how what happened almost by accident in my kitchen in probably 1992 (laughs) turned into to a friendship now and there's a lot you know and so Therese has had um an illustrious career in both music and in music thanatology which i will let her explain and and it's just to me, it's just kind of fascinating that um, what just started as this "What's that?" in 1992 became something so much richer over time, you know. And I and I have so much you know, to talk to, to Teresa about today. Um, and so I think maybe a good place to start with. Uh, our questioning is the the book that that Therese uh, contacted me about was the submerged reality, and so I guess we could start off Therese by asking you, what is your relationship to or understanding of the divine feminine of Sophia? Oh my God! Well, um. Michael, thank you for going to the heart of the matter right away. You don't give a girl a break. Um, I'm Irish. I noticed. I noticed, yeah. Um, Okay, well, first of all, I I want to do the disclosure. Um, You know, I'm a first-generation American. Both my parents are immigrants. Uh, My mother came from County Cork and my father from Malta. So these are two extraordinarily different kinds of Catholicism, a Mediterranean, warm, sunny, and an Irish. I'll go down fighting. um, For sure. Kind of orientation. And yet um, it, So in our family, we were raised Catholic and really the way my mother and my father each lived out their commitment as Catholics was very different. And, and at times each thought the other's 
version of Catholicism was only superstition instead, <laughs> instead of real, real Catholic. Um, but anyway, it was natural then in that context for me to be raised um, completely, gracefully, naturally, intimately connected to the sacraments, to the Eucharist, to prayer, to monasticism, and particularly Carmelite monasticism. But Mary was the heart of everything. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was the heart of everything. Um, so I grew up with Marian liturgies, the masses of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the rosary, uh, uh, Marian iconography was a part of daily life. So somehow that picture colors and influences the texture for all the stages through childhood, young adulthood, teenage, adolescence, young person who doesn't know left from right and then struggling adult, you know. Um, um, and my understanding of prayer, of the sacraments, of the Eucharist, and of the Divine Feminine have continued to change and evolve at every stage of my life. But I just want to say, I think I'm, I was pre preternaturally disposed towards great reverence for Mary, which made me open to what would the feminine wisdom be? How does this function? What is the voice when we read the gospels and see that literally a handful of words out of thousands and thousands of words, only a handful of words are, 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 are made room for Mary's voice. So how then do we find Mary or, and then it grows with reverberation over the years. M Mary was an historical person, but then how do I experience the authority of the feminine and what would experience as the divine feminine and all those kinds of grapplings go become linguistic and theological and spiritual and philosophical and political and religious and institutional. So you asked a simple question, but I can't give you a simple answer. Well, let me let me even follow up there a little bit, because that's exactly, of course, um, I'm sure you remember, Therese, is how we met. You know, it's exactly that Michael Martin in his editorial life, you know, runs a journal, Jesus, the imagination. I think it's a nice thing what you do annually, Michael, you uh, you give it a fun theme that I'm sure Therese and I both think is always provocative. It's like, what, what's coming next, maybe for next year? Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, one was Christ Orpheus, but the one we both, we've written for most every issue, um, but it was the Divine Feminine. And at one point, I get a long, really gracious, really insightful letter about an article I wrote uh, for your the issue of the journal dedicated to the Divine Feminine. And it was one of those cases where Therese uh, probably even saw more writing or more more in my writing than I did myself, right? Um, 
and that, uh, that's one of the gifts of friendship, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Yeah, and so you wrote to me out of the blue, and I had, of course, seen your name, and I knew the high regard that Michael had for you. And then we we had, you know, and still have quite a correspondence. But I, you know, I was writing, my son would say, Dad, you went like total left brain on that thing. Total left brain. Like who's gonna <laughs> pick, who, who's gonna pick up on any of it? And then lo and behold, you get, you know, get, get this wonderful letter from somebody who just gets it, right? You know. Well, uh, Mike, Mike, if I could say something, the the piece that you wrote called Springs and Whirlpools. Yeah. You have this opening line in the very beginning. Um, you're talking about the notion of paradox and. Uh, when uh, breaking things down and opening things up at the same time, uh, it's more like flowing water than battering ram. Mm. And I thought, this is it. This is it. This is this is one of the many characteristics I think of the divine feminine. Um, we'll keep on radiating and. Um, The presence is known in many forms, be it the trickle of a stream, the swell of the river, the morning dew, the rain. Um, that fluidity, the way it works and permeates and um, quenches and it is one of the many characteristics, I think, and is precisely also what makes it so difficult in a world that has made an idolatry out of data. Uh, mm -hmm. They only want what you can weigh and measure and contain and put in the box and buy and sell and analyze and the rest of it. But what you were speaking about is a kind of way of wisdom in which you break things down and open them up at the same time. I don't, Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Somebody who's bringing the analytical and the analogical together in one kind of moral <laughs> imagination. I, I wrote his notes to questions to ask you about. I have four, but one, it wasn't even a question, but I wrote analog analogical versus analytical. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, because that's so useful for you in your essay, and I think more than one essay in Mike's journal. But, uh, you know, some people write on the digital versus the uh, uh, analogical. And, um, but you say more, say more about that. Cause I knew I needed to hear you out on that. So as soon as you mentioned it, I had to interject. Well, um, you know, the culture, the dominant culture that pretends that it's scientific, but really isn't, um, um, has sought to separate out everything soulful and spiritual from material. And what it does is it values everything that can be weighed, measured, counted, analyzed, taken apart, dissected, bought, sold, commoditized, all these kinds of things. So it, it involves itself in a reality that is pledged, utterly pledged to that which is physical and material. And it acknowledges that and only that. And so you can weigh and measure and count um, information and phenomena until uh, in the case of 
gathering up our biological phenomena, uh, the humanity is completely removed. The data depersonalizes each one of us and turns us into an anonymous series of little stones or pebbles, each replaceable. And in the analogical way of being, you are working with the imagination and with a moral imagination and and you're literally living into image and word and potential and sound and you're grateful for specifically that which has not been boxed in black and white delineations so that it's um, much more quivering and potential and and I think one of the things in the analogical you're able to make connections profoundly mm. and freshly and newly and intimately that cannot be done when you only allow a reality of weighing, measuring, counting, buying, selling, utilitarian hoo-ha. And that, that sort of brings me not just with you, Mike Sauter, but with Michael Martin, uh, his big Sophianic concern is, um, don't mean to whittle this down to one thing, Michael, but your concern about our estrangement, our actual estrangement from, from reality, which is to say anything mm -hmm. that can't be weighed, measured and counted, we're, we're encouraged to be estranged from. We, we, and so we speak about our modern day malaise of fragmentation and compartmentalization. Uh, that's how uh, we might have a job with a corporation eight hours a day that's leading to the destruction of human beings or of the earth and have no qualms of conscience because it's how you're earning your living. And then you come home and you'll be a serious and tender and loving husband and father to your kids and your wife every night, or your spouse, I mean. Um, and so you carefully separate out your workday life from who you are as a man. Mm -hmm. But in this other world where you bring the analytical and the analogical together you, you, you don't shore up those kinds of distinct separations you look for the the reality is is that everything is interconnected mm -hmm. and everyone is interconnected wow. both the earth the soil the plant life the animal life the human life the cosmic life and of course michael martin's really concerned about our estrangement from the cosmological but at this point our estrangement from everything yeah well yeah i heard an interesting story today we had a an old friend in fact there at least that you no know, over more than 30 years ago i i, I was her gardener uh, she hired me to, to do gardening at her at her house and uh she um came to visit us and she's italian she brought us some, some italian peasant food for lunch and uh so i'm walking we're walking around the farm and i'm showing you things and i wanted to show her the part in our pasture where there was a native american burial or some kind of ceremonial space to see if she could sense it 
And she, she pulls off her, off her neck. She had a necklace she uses for dousing. And she was, she was dousing there. And, and we started talking about that. She said that her, was her uncle or her grandfather uh, who worked for like consumers power or somebody, but they always had him come out to douse to find whether it was water or electric lines under the ground, <laughs> you know? So he would come out here and do that. And she said she talked to him and said, that seemed like such an odd thing that they would let you do that. And he said, no, back in the day, every truck had a guy who could douse. <laughs> but now these young, he said, the young guys can't do it anymore. So they just have to rely on their stupid gadgets. But in the, talk about a practical example of exactly what, what Therese was, was talking about with the, Explain, the give analogical a, give a one and the analytical. Explain, definition for dousing, Michael, just for the few who wouldn't know. Well, you know, you know you've heard stories probably about water witches. Somebody takes a fork, willow branches. forked willow branch and finds the water. I used to be pretty good at it. I don't think I'm so good at it anymore. But, uh, or she was using just a, it's like a pendant on her necklace, which, you know, you can, you can sense the energy. Um, so, I mean, I, uh, so, so people do have a gift for that. I mean, we talked before, I think that, uh, I have a, like an acute sensitivity to magnetism. And when I'm around magnets, I can feel things that other people can't feel. And I'm kind of shocked that they can't because I'm getting dizzy. Yeah. Right? I'm getting mesmerized. Yeah. But yeah. And, and may I interrupt, Michael? This sensitivity is so intrinsic to your nature that if somebody else doesn't have it they think that you might have a pathology but i try and tell people look there's such a thing as color blindness um but the people who can see full spectrum don't consider the colorblind person to be pathological nor should the colorblind person consider our ability to see the full spectrums and blues, greens, reds as a pathology. Um, but to understand that sometimes we might be differently organized. So one person is very sensitive to currents and another person, you know, you got to beat them over the head mm -hmm. with a frying pan and a few good swear words to even get their attention. A few good swear words. I like that. Yeah. You That's and then they still don't even notice you. So uh, uh, this the, these sensitivities, I, I remember reading a biography of Bela Bartok once years ago, and I, I just loved the writer wrote a phrase about Bartok saying he had the capacity to feel forward into possibility, to feel forward into possibility. And that's why he wrote such new and stunning music. He was writing in an idiom that nobody had ever heard before. And um, not everybody, not everybody has the capacity, the desire, the willingness to even step out of the box. So- You know, one that's gaining traction now is uh, working with young people, whether it's teaching or in campus ministry, um, synesthesia, right? Because you mentioned Bartok, the composer, Catholic. 
Olivier Messiaen, French. Oh, yeah. He, he took for granted in his compositions, you know, synesthesia, this connection between mm. um, certain colors and certain musical colors, tone. Yeah, tone. you know, and uh, you're you're right, uh, Therese, that, um, you know, the analogy between colorblindness and seeing color is perfectly true. And what I find is certain certain other aspects of that are gaining a foothold, like synesthesia. But, um, you know, Michael with dousing, maybe, again, there's still a lot of cynicism. It's funny that you, until you're led to believe in these things, or you just get it, or you find that the person who tells you speaks with authority or is a trustworthy witness, you're just so quick to say, Oh, that's garbage. But, and I but wonder that, what things I say are still, oh, that's garbage in my own life that necessarily well, isn't garbage. Well, using dowsing as an example, I mean, that was pretty much a common thing uh, until the mid, I'd say the mid 20th century. Yeah. You know, I'm sure the farm, I, my farm was settled in eight, the 1860s. I am certain they found the, where the well is by dowsing. Um, may I? Add another practical piece. Um, maybe seventy-five or eighty years ago, when men or women used to love to go fishing in a simple, humble little rowboat, not some fancy, you know, fancy, fancy, fancy boat. It literally, yeah. literally a humble little rowboat. <laughs> They knew where their famous fishing spots were, and they paid attention to the uh, where the sun was in the sky and um, the ripples in the water and the rest of it. And now, m most people who love to go fishing have bought this radar thing where they mm -hmm. actually don't have to be present to any kind of observation relationship with nature they just have their little devices and so that's another example of a device taking over and actually dampening out and putting out mm -hmm. a capacity that every fisher person had until a few years ago mm -hmm. right and that's what Charles Taylor calls the buffered self the modern self is buffered from those forces in nature that you know we're kind of insulated where and 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 it, like you said 75 years is not that long ago where people were more open to it and in and i saw a great article i'll have to share it with both of you about i can't remember the title which is or maybe it was a blog post which is why why people and especially christians should believe in fairies and it was going back to the fathers and going you know going all through history uh and I've, I think about this almost every day when it, right at this time of the year when I'm in the garden, uh, that, you know, people used to, you know, have these experiences often. I mean, I'm sure, and they still do, but it used to be a lot more common that people would be uh, sensitive to uh, that kind of mitaksu world of, of fairy or of nature spirits or of dowsing. And people didn't think it was weird. I mean, if, you know, if in Ireland a hundred years ago, if, if it said, you know, I just saw one of the fairies down, down, down the road, nobody would ask you to see a psychiatrist. <laughs> you know, they'd say, oh, they'll be visiting you tonight, won't they? Right? So, and, so I, and, and, and that's what, what I, I, I think, uh, like, what's his name? Uh, 
Thompson, E.P. Thompson, the Marxist critic, calls the enormous condescension of posterity mm. that we, we think we're so advanced over yeah. earlier races. Yeah. What's the just... Lewis's name for the same thing? I forget. It's, it's a great coinage, you know, it might come to me. But I think, you know, another way of looking at so much of this is, uh, and tying it back to maybe young people, is that a book that my youngest son is reading now, but it's pretty viral, I think, um, or, or, a, or a phenomenon, a way of speaking that's coming back again is hemispheric, the brain thing, you know that. And so um, this Ian McGilchrist, who is a Cambridge educated psychiatrist, but also I think a PhD in literary studies, but he, he has a book called The Master and the Emissary. And it's about when, when the left brain gains dominance over the right brain. What is the master? The left brain, the feminine, the poetic, the imaginative the intuitive, the one, another word Therese uses is a, that which has capacity. That's a big word for you. Um, when that loses the role as master and the emissary, which is the, the left brain, you know, when that gains ascendancy, this guy, Ian McGilchrist, who's not, he doesn't put his, his wheelhouse is not faith or anything, but he knows the apocalypse has come, right? The master and his emissary. When one gets, you know, released and becomes dominant over the other, uh, it's in one sense, it's the end of a human way of being. You know, so the master and the emissary. If you don't read the book, it's at least a wonderful way of looking at some of this phenomenon we're talking about. You know, the right. divine feminine meets uh, the real, you know, meets uh, all these other ways of knowing, uh, you know, People who saw much, if you if you looked cross-culturally in the Middle Ages, and I know I won't get the analogies right, but, uh, you know, everybody should do their own research. We're not asking here that people just buy it. But if if three separate cultures that we don't see that was cross-contamination, but saw that, like, the planet Venus was, you know, related to this herb and this body part, I think we should say, wow, how come we've lost that ability of perception? Um, or... Or, yeah. or, or what can I learn from this? Right, right, <laughs> in, right. Instead of all this epistemological arrogance, yeah. you know. Uh, That's a good phrase, uh, epistemological arrogance. You know, when you're speaking about left brain, right brain, um, really great musicians have commented that, um, for instance, when you're, playing the music of Bach, um, there's a complete and total balance of left and right hemispheric activity. Interesting. And, and um, um, I suspect that there are any number of arts and creative activities for which the same occurs, where one can be in a complete balance of left and right, as opposed to leaning Tower of Pisa one way or the other, you know? Mm. And that balance is, um, well, we know that the world we live in today is out of balance, period. Yeah. Every direction in which we look, uh, medicine, government, law, jurisprudence, you name it, it everything's skewered. Um, but for us to be able to recover all of these capacities again, to me, that would be real progress and really be the message of hope. Good. 
that would be really the great midwifery, the great, the great activity would be to not to claim that one is better than the other, but to bring them both right to the front and have them living, breathing in balance. How would people, how would we teach them to recognize the balance? You know, when, when you, we began this conversation, I was quite flattered that I think you said this image of water, water breaking apart and also kind of creating at the same time. You called that a balance, but I was, you know, I had mentioned how my son saw the whole essay as like left brain run amok. But do we have a word? Do you think, you know, you guys are better athletes than I am. Uh, is, would we call that beauty or harmony and beauty? You know, are, is there a word that you would settle on for now when we sense that it's the balance and not, because I, I think we need such a corrective, right? If Rilke said that at first women will ape the ways of men and then, you know, certainly there'll be a coming into their own. Some people might find that sexist or kind of like patronizing. Not so sure it is, but, um, you know, so I'm always, I'll be honest, you know, I'm always advocating for just, you know, let's have a little more representation from the left brain in this, folks. But I, I, I wouldn't ever deny that what we're looking for is balance. What would, how would you guys help somebody see it? Michael? I was going to let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> is that an okay I, question? Well, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, in, in, in musical terms, you know, I, I love the, the original meaning of the word harmony had to do with, it was a woodworker's term. Okay. Harmonia and referred to the artisan in wood had such an ability and a capacity to bring grains, pieces of wood with grains going in opposite directions together without the use of any adhesives. So it was an incredible skill that one had developed to the point of artistry. And it's work <laughs> and you know but i oftentimes i hesitate to use the word harmony because in our world today people tend to think of harmony as just simply the absence of um discord right dis, oh. yeah, dis, yeah discord yeah or, or or tension or something but the other really important thing about that the really great woodworker who can can do the wood joinery is bringing together massive amounts of torque and tension in their ability to bring these pieces of wood together in what we call harmonia. And so I learned that uh, uh, very much from the soundboard of the piano and from the soundboard of the harp. Um, and you know, in the world of harp, everything about being in tune is uh, the string is pulled in completely opposite ways. The string is vertical, so it's anchored in the body of the harp and pulled up to the harmonic curve. It's all the time being pulled in two opposite directions. Now, when we humans are, we you might come home to your spouse at night and go, oh, got it. I'm just torn in two different ways over that. But in fact, without that tension of the opposites, in music, you cannot create beauty. So that tension is actually essential. You don't want a world that's so flabby and casual and without a backbone or a spine so that anything goes. You need that tension for the beauty. Yeah, and you use the example of Bach, and I think it's a perfect example because it's so technically challenging, 
but still, because, I mean, but still, it's so evocative of beauty. I mean, so many times I've welled up in tears listening to Bach, um, which y- you see with other kinds of virtuoso pieces, they don't touch the heart; they touch the head. You know, they, you know, it's look what I can do. But you don't get that from Bach. You get you get something very different, which is pretty it's miraculous it's, 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 miraculous is the way to describe it how Therese, he can do, do that yeah Therese, you might remember you know in that same essay uh, we're just talking about the divine feminine not my essay per se but the uh i think i turned you on to one of my heroes john sullivan the french writer and he uh, absolutely yeah and in morning light <laughs> the same book i probably recommended he's he says in order to write that book which i think is a work of sociological genius he says i listened to bach every morning as oh, the yeah. trucks roll into the city and then he writes down his insights in the thing or well, he's not i shouldn't even say insights that sounds i don't know it doesn't sound too forceful or something but he had to capture a certain mode you know there it is yeah, ah. <laughs> yeah. It, it is so marked up and 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 mike you're see that's the power of this journal jesus the imagination is bringing so many people together in radical ways so our beginning to i mean michael martin and i speak together all the time not a week ever goes by that where we don't speak um but also our ability to write each other risk strangers writing each other saying hey i just read your xyz this is profound. It moved me so much. Well, when you introduced all of the readers of Jesus' imagination uh, to John Sullivan, I tell you, he was a life-changing guy for me. Yeah. I, I have I got everything that I could that was in Eng- translated into English. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's not sadly not enough. There's about thirty novels left. Yeah. And, uh, it's yeah. a smidge. Yeah. It's a smidgen. But look at that. Yeah. Talk about a diamond in the rough. The binding is horrible. His picture right. of himself on the front is goofy. The it's yellow, the, the yellow burns the eyes when you look at it. If God ever tried to hide a book, it was yeah. you, know, you look online and it's so cheap, free or ninety-two cents or something. You think you know nothing good could come from Nazareth. You're not going to buy this thing. And there it is. There it is. Uh, so I would like to to uh, there. I want to I want to connect this to music. And we were talking about this this kind of experience of. Uh, the inauthentic you know or you or the data-driven or a- analytical versus the analogical the, um the, the out of the out of balance yeah and and yeah. so this afternoon i had to go to the store for something and we we just bought a new car which came with a free trial of sirius xm and i was listening to the beatles station and they're they're playing the 100 best 100 most popular beatles songs chosen by our listeners and number one was probably one of my favorite Beatles songs. Which, can you guess which it, what, what it was? Let it be. All you no. need is love. <laughs> it was Hey Jude, actually. Oh, okay. yeah. Hey, hey Jude. And, oh, are we supposed to guess that one, Michael? Go ahead. I, know, I thought maybe you would. Um, now, and I, I remembered what I, I used to do uh, a demonstration first when I was a Waldorf teacher, but it, I did it even in college uh, several times where just an experience in listening. And I would have the students. I, I would play in the on the in the classroom recording thing, or I when I was an older teacher, I'd bring in a boombox and I'd play the first 
minute or so of let it be and but then i would sit down at the piano i'd play it and sing and i am not no nowhere close to as good a singer as paul mccartney and i'd say okay which one do you like better and they always said the one with me and i said well why and they said I, I don't know. Um, it just feels something here. It's, I don't know what it is, but it feels more real or is it more alive or something, which, which, is the, which was the whole point of that, of that demonstration I would do with them, just to uh, show them what our experience of music, you know, that's always, almost always synthetically uh, produced in some way or digitally or analog or analog however it's 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 reproduced it's really not music in 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 its purest sense well it's by the time we receive it it's run through so many electronic processes right and we we buy it as a digital something or other and um oh. um i think that when you were in the classroom with the people you simply sat down at the piano and your fingers touched the keys and your voice came out and it went through no mediation process it was a direct contact experience it, it wasn't filtered through anything and um i think that's why Joni mitchell could sing so many years ago that she was walking down the street and she saw that man singing on the corner and he played real good for free you know mm. she was completely touched by that and she said what does she say me i play for money and those velvet curtain calls mm -hmm. uh, got a bright limousine and it, she spoke about the music her success but she was is probably one of the greatest singer songwriters that mm -hmm of the century and um we don't want to live without her but the fact of the matter is i have a, a lifelong friend mickey Houlihan at um curve blue in boulder and he's always saying the two words music and industry um the, putting those two words together it's an abomination you know mm -hmm. because it it's a contradiction in terms it's mm -hmm. a uh, and and I agree with that. And so because of that, the average person today only knows about the business of music. They know about the Grammys and Billboard and all the rest of it and who sold how many millions of units and how many hits you had and what your playlist is and all that. And also so much of the music is so produced and it's not really actually the experience of music, but is a packaging phenomena that's built on illusion mm -hmm. that's totally colored with the commoditization of sexuality. So the experience of Yo-Yo Ma simply walking out on stage quietly, sitting down with the cello and beginning to play with nothing other than himself, his instrument and his bow and his fingers is a life-changing experience and it also interesting to me that, and i i mentioned this to students at least every semester i'll ask them how many of you play a musical instrument 
almost none compared to oh when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, where everybody yeah. played, everybody was trying to play, so even if you were self-taught, no yeah. one was interested. It's amazing how few compared to even 20 or 30 years ago of the students okay. I, I teach. There's a related question, too, which might have been, who took music lessons as a kid? I bet you 90% of the hands went up, but like who plays music? You know, it's a, it's a completely different thing. You know, a lot of them were forced in early ages um, to do it. But, you know, the enjoyment, uh, the confusion between taking in music and making music, you know, all these things are, by the time we graduate from say 12th grade, we've been educated out of even making those important distinctions. Or poetry or anything, right? Right, right. <laughs> all, all the fun stuff. Uh, so Teresa, you know, I think that's a good way for us to, to, to talk about how you came to your vocation in music. And like I call it double vocation, triple vocation. How did that happen? Is that another simple question for you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for for the people who can't see this at home, it seems like we're putting in ter Teresa into like angst every time uh, we ask these questions. It's great. It's very charming. Definitely uh, charm. <laughs> hey, by the way, I heard once charming described that word is the blend between the masculine and the feminine. Oh. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, the anima and the animus. Isn't that funny? It kind of works yeah. when somebody's charming. Yeah. They've kind of reached that. Yeah. Spell. Um. So let's see now, Michael asked how I came to my vocation. Well, one of them is that um, it was a long time coming. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier in this hour that I was born into a certain family, culture, cultural context. And so for me, I, I was thrilled to be able to go to mass every morning as a little grammar school age children. Now, my brothers and sisters were not the least bit interested in that. Couldn't have cared less. But I got up early every single morning, walked to the church, and I was so happy. But I also sang in the Scola Cantorum. Um, and then I think in terms of my inner life, And my sense of beauty began to be awakened very early on because my mother frequently took me in the car alone to go visit the Carmelite monastery. So there I heard instead of suburban spirituality in a big, huge Catholic parish, lots of noise and bustling and coughing and shoving and you kids shut up and that sort of thing. Um, when we would go to Carmel, absolute beauty, and all of the vocalizations were done by women. So I began receiving this incredibly feminine form of attunement and harmony and strength and melody in, in the way they sang together. And also their monastery was very beautiful. They had an open house once and only once. Uh, when I was a child and we got to go in all the hidden places and I never forgot it. Um, so I grew up in a context in which women and music and beauty and voice were all harmonized and encouraged. Um, um, but I 
began in the visual arts and and it wasn't till i was in uh, art school you know that uh, i used to do what you two michael and mike are talking about i noodled around on instruments um but i was in the visual arts and my classmates who were all in the film department said um hey i've got to get this i've got to get this film into you know by the end of the week will you help me come up with a with the music for the background i say sure and all we would do is just do something terribly simple and i would do some sorts of sounds and music and so forth in the background of their films well one time one of my professors philip martin took me aside and said would you come visit me in my office and i thought that i was going to be in trouble and he said um have you spoken why why are you in the visual arts you something's going on for you with music and i thought he was just joshing me i didn't take him seriously at all and it wasn't until years later that i was out in denver and i attended a lecture by this legendary father edward mcginnis and i heard his legendary bar talk lectures <laughs> and they changed my life and I was glued to my seat and I was nothing but a kid moving through town and heard his lecture. And I stayed after the class was over and went up and asked him a question. And he knew I wasn't one of his students. And he whipped off his glasses and said something that no professor could get away with now. <laughs> because there would be all these gender issues. But he whipped off his glasses and turned around to me and said, Girl, you can hear. <laughs> and so what it was he knew i recognized something about the scales that i was hearing and i had a bodily memory of the dorian mode in scola contorum and um so we spoke and it was father mcginnis who helped me start all over again and go to music school mm. so so there was that sort of turning point um, and then there were a series of a dozen more turning points. And I always just happened to follow where I felt I should be and go as opposed to having a plan for a career. I had zero plan for career. I only wanted, I just chose to do what I thought was beautiful. I couldn't do anything else but that. And then I was thunderstruck you know when i heard the harp and, and my mother was a little bit um severe and said uh, don't be ridiculous you're, you're a pianist you don't spread yourself too thin you know and i waited till i had my first working girl paycheck and bought a harp <laughs> <laughs> i put it i put it down payment on a harp i should say and um one thing led to another uh, so my life in music i'm sure my parents were very worried that i'd never be able to earn a living but i never worried about it i thought that if i did what was beautiful then something would be emanating and that's exactly what happened now you've tapped into something there therese that like every young person would say if that was true if that were possible i would like to do that you know that you could do what you loved, you could do what was beautiful. Oh, oh she's just lucky. She's a lucky one, or she was born with much more talent in that area. Even no. though she's self-effacing, 
she was born with much more talent. What do you say to somebody like that? I, I don't think I was. I actually no. um, started very late, was very, very shy, had no belief in myself. The only thing I had maybe was this feminine orientation to feeling forward into possibility. I think that I was always lyrical. Okay. That is about it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, I didn't necessarily have the hands. I didn't enter into that world with um, great technique. I didn't, um, I had to, I had to develop the capacity for simultaneous independence with left and right hands on, on piano, and then went and tossed my world upside down when I went to harp because I, I completely reversed the left and the right bass and treble. Um, and, and then the strings are vertical. So um, I, 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 my origin, my begin, my start was very, very humble. It was very, very humble. Yeah. The thing that made it different was that I just never gave up. I could no sooner have not been artistic or followed beauty. And by that, I mean painting, poetry, music, all of it. I could no sooner have not done that than if you said to me, we are not going to let you breathe. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't an option. I, right, right, right. It, it, it was not- I always tell people, I'm, I guess I'm too weak to do the, the professional thing, you know, and just commit myself to something I hate. I was born so weak that I, I have to do something I love or I'm just going to ruin those around me. Well, you know, the other great thing about music, and I think all of the arts, is you can't outgrow it. You can't outgrow it, yeah. It's it, like the Gospels. It's a completely inexhaustible wellspring. Uh, and... Uh, We speak about someone really great as being a living master, uh, you know, and now I'm thinking about somebody like Yo-Yo Ma on the cello. Of course, he's a he's a living master, as was Pablo Casals and Leonard Rose and others. But by the same token, he didn't get there overnight. This whole thing about being given the opportunity to repeat something tens of thousands of times in slow, gradual um, um, capacities are, are much more like gardening and farming than building a home. Mm -hmm. Because the soil of the land or the soil in your garden or the soil on the farm becomes healthier and healthier and healthier and more alive the more years you garden and work with the soil. Um, and that's very, very different than hothouse technique stuff. It, it, down to the point that I think, um, um, I want to say something else. There, there are some people who can develop technique uh, quickly and easily without too much sweat or blood or tears because they're completely disconnected and it's just a fingertip facility. Um, and, it, and they're not engaged with it, with their humanity, that is with their mind, with their mm -hmm. heart, with embodiment, with sacramentality, with listening um, and responding. Um, 
And so there's this business of um, one of the key points of genuine artistry, whether you're talking about being a painter or a musician, a poet, whatever, um, your capacity to receive and to give are so finely developed that every time you hear the spoken word or music, you receive the transformative power of the word or the music or the painting or the movement or whatever. Whereas other people only receive data. Doggone it, if I can just get this piece in F sharp minor, I'll be fine. But that's not how that's not how you embody and ensoul great art. Mm -hmm. So we come back to the incarnation again, you know, uh, something that engages your whole humanity, body, soul, and spirit, you have a chance of feeling forward into possibility mm -hmm. and, and doing something creative that is yeah. real. That that's is a real. great, that's a great takeaway, isn't it? You know, body, soul, and spirit. If you have something that engages all those, you have a real possibility of falling yeah. into the future. Yeah. And it's interesting how that, <clears throat> that, I mean, that, I guess we can call it, I wouldn't call it a skill, but that, that awareness of the, the, be able, the, the being able to be present. So I remember I was probably about 24, 23, and I had been playing with, this group of people a lot and and we got to the point finally where where it's almost like it's almost like cont contemplation because we we had been doing you know the prayer we've been practicing we would we're playing playing the notes right but yeah. we got to a place where i remember i'll never forget this where it's almost like the the world disappeared and we discovered the play at the center of that, but it took a lot of work to get there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and so I was, I was telling Mike and last time on, on the podcast about when we did the session for, for our intro and outro music, that it was so much fun because we were playing with really good musicians who were really, we were all really attentive to each other. We we're all in the same room with no headphones and it was the most fun session we'd ever had. We, we, I taught them the song and we recorded the first take. Uh, yeah. And we were just there and we, and we said, well, I don't think we need to do it again. <laughs> that was pretty good. And we were just, we were just, it was wonderful how aware of each other we all were. And, it, and, it's, it's, and, and it's something uh, musicians can, can either not, not even be aware of or take for granted. Well, you know, no. it's a kind of um, a person has to be able to trust that level of intimacy. Uh, you don't need a boss that says uh, at bar eight, we're going to switch the chord structure. If you're listening to one another, you're 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 able to listen and respond but the difference between the technician and the artist is the technician is so almost desperately gripping 
-hmm. on a score, which is to say a map, a map <laughs> that tells you right. everything you're supposed to do from point A to point Z. And they can't deviate from anything, but they, they don't trust themselves yeah. at all. <laughs> but you're describing a situation in which you and your friends and colleagues were all there together and you'd become so, you dropped into the zone so deeply that you could trust, respect, you had each other's backs, you knew, <laughs> and you could respond. Yeah. And so let me ask you, Therese, is, how does uh, this kind of phenomenon we're talking about translate to music thanatology or doesn't it? And describe well, music thanatology too. I'll let Therese describe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, that was, that it's, was me to Therese. Yeah. She's the fountainhead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, music thanatology uh, is 100% devoted to the care of the dying, the, the, the loving care of the physical and spiritual needs of the dying through the delivery of prescriptive music. And it is a subspecialty of palliative medicine. So it's a medical modality, it's a clinical delivery, but people understand it or don't understand it based on who they are. So for instance, when somebody is clueless about what a medical modality might be, they, they'll say, oh, Therese, we love your ministry. Because uh, uh, somebody else who can't have any conception of music other than entertainment says, oh, yeah, distraction therapy is really effective. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Crucified it, between two thieves, right? You know, people, people, <laughs> people perceive they, they either get it or miss it based on what their experiences of music and art really are. But I would say to you, it doesn't start with the music. It begins in the silence. And that is, I want to come back full circle to intimacy, intimacy and trust. A person has to have a real relationship with what we loosely call silence in order to feel forward into possibility, in order to hear or imagine what is possible and what might be trying to come into manifestation. If your head is already filled up with an agenda and you know <coughs> you have to or you want to or you must play this, that, or the other in the remaining 12 minutes before the curtain goes down on, on, on the concert stage, you know, that's a plan of action. But when you're present with the dying, their condition, physiologically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, is so dynamic is utterly dynamic. It might go through many changes even within the space of one hour. So the person who goes in to visit your mother, Michael, thinking, I'm gonna play these six tunes, isn't even paying attention to your mother. Our job is to begin in silence, rather like 
cleaning out the garage, emptying it out so that there's room to receive another into ourselves. And we have to pay attention to their breathing and their respiration and their temperature and their respiratory cycles and um, many, many, many other bodily phenomena. So we're actually reading the body, but we're also paying attention to many other kinds of things. And then we're, we're actually making decisions. But you're still playing somewhat freely because if I'm playing for your mother, Michael, and all of a sudden she breaks into her, it, it becomes obvious that she has suddenly entered a fever. She's in a febrile condition. Then I know I have to adjust and make changes. Um, and so you can make a whole series of decisions. So that's an example of complete intimacy with being able to change and adjust minutely right within the flow of things, as opposed to saying, this is what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. After that time playing for your mother or your father or whomever, the delivery of prescriptive music. When we're there, we know, again, if we're doing something poorly or if we're doing something well, because usually their vital signs are going to um, change. You'll see them go into a deeper state of relaxation but also what's going on is they're facilitating their own leave taking. And in the practice of biomedicine where everybody is turned into data. Everybody's they, turned into data, right. Everybody is turned into the data. The medicalization of death is a whole world, yeah. And it's big business. Yeah. So when you have a modality that's clinical, but it's based on intimacy, one of the things that happens is if I play for your mother, what she receives is utterly different from what anybody else in the hospital will be receiving that night. It's a one-of-a-kind delivery. Nobody else will receive that. Um, um, it's based on her needs, her conditions, and her own changing terrain. Um, but what we're doing is facilitating her one-of-a-kind, unique process. And to the degree that the delivery of modern medicine, biomedicine, is so technological and dehumanizing, um, even though we're proud of the medical advances, um, When you are completely connected to another person's heartbeat and respiratory patterns and temperature, you are with them and no one else in the whole world. You are totally serving them, period. 
And the degree to which you can listen and respond to them is the degree to which you kind of create something like what Mike Sauter describes as this fluid current, that it's much more water than battering ram. You allow them to enter into their own experience of unbinding and <laughs> unbinding. Yeah. And that you were, you've been able to, to do this <laughs> like, you uh, know, in, in a parallel polis kind of way in hospitals is you, you deserve some kind of medal for that. Yeah. You're a worm, <laughs> you know what, I mean? what Hobbes would call a worm in the uh. Leviathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and, and so, uh, just to let our listeners know, um, when precisely did the Chalice of Repose project start? Oh, it started first as the vision and the brainchild. Yeah. You know, that first, Manu had the emphysema. And that was in the early 70s, but it didn't have the name Chalice of Repose project. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't become a formal corporation and all that until 1992. Okay, but um, music thanatology was welcomed as a subspecialty of palliative medicine and as a medical modality in 1991, and then we began to mainstream medicine in the United States. You know, I've delivered grand rounds at Sloan Kettering and Harvard and Johns Hopkins all over the place, um, and at the time we were contributing something really, really important and new. And because we live in America where anything and everything is commoditized and somebody figures out how to sell something, um, overnight after the television documentaries were shown, um, everybody with uh, any kind of an instrument whatsoever thought, oh, I can do that. and. <laughs> And so you have 400 knockoff programs everywhere. But music thanatology has got a very, very special curriculum and set of um, um, practices, would you say? Practices and um, procedures. We've got a definite way of being. So it's not a an anything goes sort of situation. And it's very, very formal. Um, the people who have, who, who work as music anatologists, genuine ones in hospitals um, are very, very respected members of the staff and work in interdisciplinary palliative care teams. Um, so it really is history, but as you know, uh, I mean, the second, a beautiful designer has brought something wonderful into a piece of clothing or fabric. Uh, 48 hours later, somebody has a knockoff version of that. If, so we live in the era of, of endless um, swiping and digital reproduction and commoditization and this, that, and the other. So there's a lot of things going on now with that. But our devotion was always and only and remains the spiritual, the loving, spiritual and physical care of the dying with prescriptive music. I, I know I've forgotten some important things there, but I, I um, 
it was um I think it, the fact that it happened was so aided by, I think, by the spiritual world and by the dying themselves who responded to music very, very deeply. The doctors and the nurses saw it and said, what just happened? Mm. You know, um, and I'm thinking particularly the first man, maybe is it okay to tell the story yeah, about the first please man? Do. Yeah, please. absolutely. You know, I was just this young person working my way through medical, through um, music, my music degree. And I was working in a geriatric home and I was assigned to the care of this elderly man with the emphysema. And we were told in an in-service meeting that he would probably die we would say back then go tonight or tomorrow at the latest his lungs were dissolving and all all it was going to take was a cough and he would probably hemorrhage to death the charge nurse looked at me and said i'm assigning him to you and i had no idea why i knew nothing i knew absolutely nothing but i did have that capacity to listen and receive because of the eucharist now, I was working in a strict corporate environment where there was no talk about anything meaningful. It's just do your job and get on. So I entered that man's room. He had been a person who had been very combative and nobody on staff loved him. He, he would cuss and swear and hit you and throw food at you and that sort of thing and i entered the room and i heard the death rattle already he was actively dying you know so because of our formation and also because i was a young woman by this time and two of my girlfriends were pregnant with their first babies i'd heard them talking about the lamaze uh, natural birthing situation and they described how their husbands would sit behind them and support them from behind and help them breathe and all this. And uh, I came in the room and instead of the the man pushing me away and saying, get the hell out of here. And he, I just held his hand. And when he didn't let go, I realized, I don't know, I just did the only thing I knew how to do. So I didn't think my way through clinically. I just responded. So I got into bed and held him in the Lamaze midwifery position and held him with his little back was, his spine was completely naked and resting on my chest. And I held him from behind, had my legs around his waist and I sang Gregorian chant to him until he died. And he was hemorrhaging, he was thrashing. We, we we had already been told in advance there was no medicine, nothing more could be done for him. So I had the experience of somebody who had a bad reputation. The last moments, the last minutes of his life, what he needed and wanted was intimacy and trust. And so instead of him dying in isolation the way he had been living 
we worked as a team and we were trying we were essentially breathing together although his breathing was broken and it was because i was singing and then taking a breath and singing the next phrase and taking we we became synchronized he synchronized into me and stopped all the thrashing and this is how he unbound from the physical mm. body it was such a profound experience and also remember i'm a young woman i'm holding this absolutely emaciated little old man and my bare hands are on his wrists and hands and arms until he went from being warm to cold intimacy synchronicity and trust right three words that um definitely for another conversation too that uh, at the moment of dying mm -hmm. you know therese painted an atmosphere there that not to reduce our conversation to this at all because this was so you know this is so robust but the contrast between what you're saying all of our listeners myself included can't help but make the contrast between that and people dying alone during the whole covid thing right oh yeah <clears throat> Yeah. And, or dying, you know, connected to all kinds of machinery. Sure, sure. Yeah. So um, um, I, we should all be proud and thankful for the great things that medicine can do, particularly uh, in trauma medicine. If you're in a car wreck, an industrial accident or something, what they can do to save lives is absolutely it's amazing. Yeah. But um, this is not always the case with our with actual illnesses, with actual illnesses. And so this is also why so many people know that they they just want to die as a human being. They, yeah. don't, they don't want anything more than, please just give me a little bit of pain meds and let me go. Well, well, I mean, those examples of, of being in an accident, those are uh, applications of efficiency, right? And what you are doing and what you do is not about efficiency. No. It's about it's uh it's it's about being human, which that's why you know the the data-driven approach to healing or to medicine it, or it, death is doesn't have a place there. It, and, it's so fragmented. It's so fragmented that it's jarring. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. And so that's how, how you we, uh, so yeah. that's how you became a knee yeah. woman right? yeah yeah i suppose so i suppose yeah. so yeah definitely but i didn't discover the knee woman language till years later when i was pouring through the carmina gadelica and mm -hmm. wow this is a gold mine <laughs> it is absolutely. Oh, it's so beautiful it's so mm -hmm. beautiful yeah yeah so this business you know even today, because we're so inundated with sensory impressions, sometimes even in, well, going to Mike, something that you tried to publish in, in your article uh, about the family, uh, oftentimes even within families and marriages, people don't know how to listen to one another anymore, listen and respond. We've become so armored or yeah, absolutely. an armored uh, a child who's already six years old knows how to not listen to mom or dad <laughs> um, 
And so it's a, such a radical thing to help people become disarmed. And yeah. that's why everything comes back to me, to Orpheus and to Christ. Christ is the master of disarmament. Mm -hmm. um, the master of disarmament. And for me, whether we're being born or dying, or whether we're being born in this world or another world, disarmament and intimacy and trust, listening, responding, are also radical and subversive. Well, on that note, what do you, what do you say if we, uh, Christ as the master of disarmament, <laughs> to me, that's a bombshell and a takeaway. What if we promise to talk again at length again Therese, so nice for me to meet you face to face. You know, I'm so grateful for the correspondence and the friendship, even from oh, a distance. Th thank you. I, I, it is the same for me. And Mike, maybe another time we can talk about the work of priest. Yes, yes. That's what, you know, we can, mm -hmm. yeah. clericalism, um, your, your, your article, Knee Woman at the Well, the beginning there on clericalism. I'd love to have us three talk about clericalism and the worker priest and different models for sure. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, fellas, thank you so much. For, I just want to say one thing before you sign off. There are so many men who are scholars, artists, scientists, creators, doers, be, and but a lot of times they don't have the capacity to listen especially to women, to women as sources. And the fact that all three of us have come to each other as strangers and done so with enormous um, trust. Uh, we, we all responded to each other, no question. Absolutely, we're there, presence of being. <laughs> and right. uh, that, that um, I think is characterized by hope and uh, that just, you know, it just, everything about that is encouraging and hopeful. And that would bring us closer to healing because it's balanced. So thank you, you two fellows, for being the kind of men who can receive a feminine dimension without any kind of stress. Quite a compliment. Thank you. And thank you for, for, for talking to us today I, we, I could go on for a few hours but yeah. <laughs> but i think my kids are fighting upstairs yeah thank you fellas thank you so much i really appreciate it this has been very regenerative as God for us you. as for us well thanks everybody for listening to the regeneration podcast we'll see you next week Bye.